So, Miles, do you ever think about the futures that don't have X-Men? What do you mean, Jay? Like if Disney shutters Marvel? Wow, uh, that got real awfully fast. No, no, I mean in-universe. Like, for instance, Earth-1191 has the XSE, Earth-4935 has the Ascani Sisterhood. What about X-Men 2099? Well, they became the Protectorate. That doesn't even have an X in it. Well, that timeline did also have X-Nation. But they were a group of teenagers theoretically founded to find the new mutant messiah by former X-Men 2099 member Cerebra, although they mostly spent their time sneaking out of Xavier Center and starting shit with Exodus. Was Cerebra running the Xavier Center then? Nah, Xavier Center was run by the Sisters of the Howling Commandments, a militaristic order of mutant nuns built on the teachings of... Charles Xavier? Nick Fury. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 407 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to the present after two episodes of flashbacks. And by the present, of course, we mean the late 90s. So we are here in the very current year of 1997, and also in what will be the last year of X-Factor Volume 1. We are indeed. We have less than uh, 12 issues to go. So X-Factor was supposed to culminate in a big issue number 150, and the big reveal in that would be the mysterious identity of Graydon Creed's killer. Remember, Graydon Creed was assassinated a little under a year before where we are right now, and it was mysterious who disintegrated him. However, the series was cancelled, get this, with issue 149, which just seems kind of mean. Right? I mean, it kind of gets an ending, in that it gets a cliffhanger that leads into a spin-off series, but weird. And as we've mentioned before, we wouldn't find out what actually happened to Graydon Creed until a miniseries many, many, many years later, which just made it even more complicated. So, you and Al covered some X-Factor while I was out. What did I miss? Oh boy, uh, kind of a lot and kind of not very much at the same time. So, you know that X-Factor is the mutant superhero team organized by the U.S. government. Right. And you're probably not surprised to hear that they are once again at yet another low point. They kind of just bounce through a series of rock bottoms, huh? Oh, from one rock bottom to the next. It's like shattering the glass ceiling, but uh, in reverse and more painful. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that they have a couple of barely controlled supervillains on the team. They have Sabretooth, the sadistic and animalistic murderer, and Mystique, the manipulative, shape-shifting spy. Wait, so they're still around? Well, kind of. See, Sabretooth defeated his shock collar given to him by the government, using some really good drugs he found one time, and nearly killed the entire rest of the team. Ouch. So now, their inventor leader Forge, longtime member with powers of magnetism Polaris, and We Have Sabretooth at Home member Wildchild, are stuck in techno beds as they recover from being mauled. Okay, but that's, that's only three of them. Well, Mystique, as is her way, disguised herself as a doctor and ran away. So it's those three in techno beds. So I want to go back a step. Where are they getting these techno beds? Because if Forge is, is off the table, then what, are they back with the government? 
Forge is off the table. He's in a techno bed. They are not back with the government. They quit the government, and they were rescued from said government after being mauled by Sabretooth by the Brotherhood. That's a group of morally gray mutants led by former X-Factor member Havoc, who's much more militant these days than he used to be. And he's still working with Dark Beast from the Age of Apocalypse. Exactly. And it's Dark Beast who has turned the Brotherhood's headquarters in the sewers into a fancy techno space that presumably smells better. It would be kind of awful if it didn't. Right? Okay, so Sabretooth mauled X-Factor, and then what? Well, then he joined up with the Hounds, a different group of government-employed mutants who are hunting down other mutants. They, of course, will be a big deal in the potential future timeline of Days of Future Past, which the events of X-Factor have been inching more and more toward. Okay, so that covers everyone but Shard. Right, Shard, the holographic cop from the future, and sister of the similarly back-in-time X-Man, Lucas Bishop. Well, Sabretooth slashed her too during his rampage, and that... killed her? Huh. Well, that brings us to X-Factor number 138, Fear Walks Amongst Us. This issue is written by Howard Mackey, penciled by Mel Ruby, inked by Rob Hunter, Steve Moncuse, Alan Martinez, and Hack Shack Studios, colored by Glynis Oliver, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comercraft and Emerson Miranda. So Sabretooth, like we said, is free, and apparently most of what he's been doing with that freedom is murdering people, including a strip mall psychic who he was supposed to recruit for the Hound program. Strip mall psychic is kind of low-hanging fruit even for Sabretooth. I think he's just so excited to be able to murder again, he couldn't for so long. I thought he could, he just couldn't, you know, murder his teammates. Uh, he could only murder when the government instructed him to do so, which was, was very seldom. Uh, but yeah, remember, Sabretooth was recruited by the Hounds recently, and they were apparently, we recently found, the ones who planted him in X-Factor in the first place as a sort of sleeper agent. So, he was not recruited that recently, he was recruited back before he was even on X-Factor. Uh, I guess that's technically true, yeah. On X-Factor recently, recruited before then. The thing is, I don't know that Sabretooth knew the government put him there. That part is kind of unclear. And Sleeper Agent usually implies some kind of buried programming, which he didn't really have. His only buried programming was the stuff that was already there, which was the fact that he likes killing people. And that wasn't particularly buried. No, no, this part of the plot doesn't necessarily hold up. So, he he gets, he gets one murder in, but before he can go on a full-scale rampage, uh, he is stopped by a guy named Stone, and Stone is Sabretooth's hound handler, who who stops him in the street to scold him for, you know, murdering. Yeah, Sabretooth's about to slaughter a bunch of teens who are playing football in the street, which I guess really just, um, saves some time, since I'm sure they would have been hit by a car at some point anyway. Don't play in the street, it's not safe. Sabretooth, who has a long history of learning nothing, immediately goes to kill his next recruitment target, um, who is a, a mutant priest... And here, there's an intervention, but it's not Stone. It's someone we know from way the hell back. Um, recurring antagonist Omega Red. Right, Omega Red, the Russian super soldier, known for his stylish top knot, his name having the same color as his outfit, and having some carbonadium prehensile life force sucking tentacles sticking out of his wrists. Okay, but also his mutant death factor. You cannot forget his mutant death factor. Oh, I would never forget Omega Red's mutant death factor. Now, Omega Red hates a lot of people, but it's also important to remember that he especially hates Sabretooth, because Sabretooth was on a 10X. Dick. Oh, that too. 
But Team X was a U.S.-based spy team that also included Wolverine and Maverick and some other characters, and they were the ones that, as a mission, stole the carbonadium synthesizer from Omega Red, which would have helped stabilize his powers, and he just will not shut up about it. Every time Omega Red shows up, he's like, meh, 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 I'm gonna use my mutant death factor, meh, 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 carbonadium synthesizer. It's it's real boring, dude. Okay, but, like, I feel like that's entirely reasonable of him i mean this is the thing that this dude would require to participate in society and as is he's aggressively marginalized by its absence or rather by society's response to its absence i guess that's true shit now i feel bad for making fun of omega red look there are a lot of reasons to make fun of omega red that have nothing to do with his obsession with the carbonadium synthesizer well that's fair So there's a big fight, and it's kind of awesome looking. So we mentioned that Mel Ruby is the artist. We've seen him before. He's the artist that I always mention drew a way too sexy Bishop of Deathbird in space one time. But he's a good artist. He has a relatively realistic style, which is quite the contrast from Jeff Matsuda, the previous X-Factor artist, and Duncan Rouleau, the next X-Factor artist. And he does this amazing goddamn panel. At one point, Omega Red is standing over a fallen Sabretooth with his tentacles, like, coiling chaotically around him. And there's the stained glass window framing him, which is always dramatic. It's freaking awesome. But uh, Sabretooth does, in fact, win the fight. And afterwards, he finds Stone and demands that Stone take him to the boss. And is, is the boss here Agent Bowser? Uh, Agent Bowser, Agent Bowser, who we just cannot get rid of, yes. But I also feel like we should not neglect to mention that in attempting to threaten Stone, as he finds him having freshly come out of the shower without his stone skin on, it's like people who talk about having to put their face on to leave the house, he has to put his stone on, uh, Sabretooth throws a shredded, deflated football on the ground, thus implying that on the way here he tracked down those street football kids and murdered them too. Like, I know this book is not the best written, necessarily. The art tends to be kind of cartoony and weird. It's really goddamn dark a lot of the time. A little bit, yeah. So, while Sabretooth is is marauding around, the rest of X-Factor are are still hooked up in their their techno-nonsense in the Brotherhood's secret lair in the sewers. And this is kind of weird, because at least Forge and Polaris are kind of the two most central uh, members of X-Factor. They're like the two heroes who have been here for a long time. Also, Wildchild is there. And throughout all of the four issues we're going to be covering, they're convalescing the entire time. Like, we see them, but they do almost nothing, which is kind of a bold choice. Really? Because I think there's there's a long and storied and fairly good tradition of sidelining central characters in order to focus on on marginal characters in in team books. Like, that's something that's happened before, and it's certainly something that will happen again, and it's a tradition that I actually really dig. I kind of like it too, yeah. It just seems odd to do so for four months. You know, we have the Sabretooth issue here, the next one's going to be Mystique, then there's a couple about Shard. Yeah, but I mean, we're talking about three characters, so if you'd done one issue highlighting each of them, you'd still have three months. One's a two-part story, so, you know, why not? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm not against it. Like, the Sabretooth issue is okay, but the rest of them, this is some of the most fun I've had with X-Factor in a while, except for that Sabretooth one-shot, which was not technically X-Factor. Yeah, I really, really like the Mystique issue, which is the one we're going to get to next. But first, let's talk a little bit more about the Brotherhood. So, we mentioned that Dark Beast has these weird technopods hooked up in the sewers. 
I mean, he's really spent some time here. He's really upgraded the place with a lot of tech, and it's 1997, so let's see. Uh, I bet he's already hooked up a PlayStation 1 with Final Fantasy 7, a pile of Tamagotchis and Palm Pilots, and is using his newly unlimited internet access from America Online to play chess against Deep Blue on his Apple PowerBook 1400. See, I was with you until the PowerBook 1400 because I find his aesthetic incredibly evocative of the old, like, candy-colored IMAX. You know you're not wrong in, like, the iBook laptops that had that same sort of candy-colored translucent plastic? Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. So instead of, uh, I'm a PC, I'm a Mac, it could have been, I'm a PC, I'm a twisted analog to an inventor from the present day with no sense of morality and metal pants? Right, a Mac. There you go. Although I guess those commercials were a little bit later in Apple history. Anyway, the point being in all of these things is that Mel Ruby, despite his love of drawing sexy characters, has resisted the urge, admirably, to continue to put all of the convalescing heroes into bikinis made of bandages, which was not something that the previous artist could resist. Yeah, that was a choice. Now, Dark Beast has sworn fealty to Havoc. And Havoc does not buy this for a second to his credit. Yeah, Havoc doesn't trust him, and he thinks to himself, and thus to the readers, about really only being here to stop Dark Beast's true agenda. This is, I think, the first sign we've seen that Havoc isn't a true believer in the cause of the Brotherhood, since he's not shut up to anybody around him about how he is a true believer, and is not brainwashed, he promises. While Havoc is busy being possibly not brainwashed, Forge dreamwalks while he's comatose. He follows his spirit guide, who's a raven, specifically because his girlfriend Mystique's name is Raven. Is that a step up or a step down from that time that Zaladane thought her sister was Polaris because Polaris's name was Lorna Dane? I'm gonna go with a step up because at least it makes sense in terms of name structure. Yeah, there is that. Meanwhile, meanwhile, some federal agents land their helicopter in the middle of nowhere in a city near a broken-down car, and they find Mallory Brickman, the wife of anti-mutant Senator Miles Brickman, in the trunk. Uh, The agent who finds her says, and I quote, The tip was righteous. Oh no, Jay, you're saying it wrong. I think it's more along the lines of, The tip was righteous! So are are we looking at, like, agents William S. Preston Esquire and Ted Theodore Logan? One can only hope, yeah. So there's a joyful reunion in the hospital between Mallory and her daughter Gloria and her husband, Ralph? Okay, his name is Miles. I I remember that specifically. Uh, Is is her pet name for her husband Miles Ralph? Is, Is this your way of saying that you want people to start calling you Ralph, Miles? I mean, not specifically. I guess they could. Ralph's a pretty good name. Nice to meet you. Name's Miles. Ralph, for short. I, I believe Ralph is officially his middle name, but yeah, I, I really love it when people forget characters' names in the middle of the same issue. <laughs> it's great, it's great. Uh, or of course, there's always the classic of Stanley forgetting the Hulk civilian name, and that's why we have Robert Bruce Banner. Oh, comics. Oh, comics. And that brings us to X-Factor number 139, The Enemy Within, written by Howard Mackey, penciled by Duncan Rulo, who's going to be the new series artist, inked by Art Tiber, Whitney McFarland, and Hack Shack Studios, colored by Glynis Oliver, and lettered by Richard Starkings, and Comicraft, and Kif Scholl. So I want to start by talking about Duncan Rulo's art, because it is a ride, and I think it's also a really good fit for this story in this book. Yeah, we, of course, uh, have seen Duncan Rulo a few times before, most notably in that bizarre, excellent juggernaut one-shot. And this was a book previously drawn, X-Factor was, that is, by Jeff Matsuda, a very, very manga-inflected artist, like Joe Matarera, but more cartoony. And Rouleau makes Matsuda's art look 
freaking realistic. Matsuda was kind of a weird fit for a violent government conspiracy-based comic. Rouleau is, like, a really weird fit, but I don't know. I, I kind of dig it. Really? I think Rouleau's kind of right on for this. Okay. It's just such a surreal art style, and this is, in theory, one of the more down-to-earth X-books plot-wise. I mean, it's about government shit going on and potentially leading toward a dark future, and, like, a lot of people get murdered. Yeah, but you know that people getting murdered doesn't make it down to earth. Well, we've both watched Snowpiercer. Oh man, yeah, I was not expecting Captain America to talk so much about eating babies. That said, let's talk a little bit about this cover because I love it. Right, so the cover is Rouleau's mystique. She's wearing a pink frilly apron and a giant haribo covered in skulls, while pouring tea that has a giant skull and crossbones in steam. Subtlety. Fuck subtlety. Uh, my wife actually pointed out that um, his art, especially on that cover, but also inside, reminds her a lot of Sam Keith's work on the Max, and she is not wrong. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's a very, like, Sam Keith vibe with traces of Larry Stroman. Mm-hmm. I think so. I think that's a good way of describing Rouleau. So this issue is about Mystique's life as Betty Draper, um, by which I mean Mrs. Senator Miles Ralph Brickman. It's a really solid Mystique story. I know we give Mackie a lot of shit, but he has some very good insights going on here, on, at least on this character. Uh, yeah, I, I really dig his Mystique. I think he, he gets her. Uh, their relationship, uh, the Senator and Mallory, which is to say Mystique, is just so agonizingly white picket fence, though. And did you notice that the Brickmans keep using the phrase freshen up over and over about Mallory. Like, she has to freshen up when she gets back to the hospital, and then when she's being interrogated, uh, they, they ask, she asks if she can freshen up again, and it just keeps happening. Like, is she constantly spraying herself with Febreze and hanging air fresheners from her ears? Are they constantly checking her sell-by date? What is up with this couple's kink? She's douching with Lysol, dude. Oh. Anyway. I mean, if you're talking about specifically 50s euphemisms, that is probably what's going on. But it's Mystique, so no, no, she's not. She's she's going and having existential crises in the bathroom. But I also want to unpack the driving implication of this story, which is that Mystique has, while doing everything else she does, successfully spent years as Mallory Brickman in a marriage with an adopted kid, and no one has been the least bit suspicious until now, because that is bonkers. Like, think about Mar Marvel time and how it works. Like, she was living as Mallory Brickman while running the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. I think you're right, and I, I looked around, I did some research, I don't think there ever was a real Mallory Brickman. Like, I don't think this is an instance of Mystique murdering and replacing someone, which she has certainly done. I think she just wanted to have an in in the government, and so she created a new identity to marry a dude she hated and adopted a kid with him. I assume Mallory Brickman is just not around much and, like, goes to visit her mother in the country periodically or something, but I have no idea how Mystique could have pulled this off. I think her husband assumes that she's just freshening up all the time, like, 22 hours a day. <laughs> but also, how does Mystique manage all of these things? Because, like Wolverine, the more we learn about her backstory, the more crowded that backstory becomes. Is it just like one of those sitcom episodes where somebody has accidentally scheduled two dates at the same time and has to keep running back and forth between the two of them and remembering, like, what accent they're using for one and what hat they're wearing for the other? Oh, that gets so much funnier when it's a shapeshifter, too, because eventually they show up with, like, someone else's nose. <laughs> exactly. Okay, Marvel, 
I know there have been a lot of X-Men spinoffs, arguably too many X-Men spinoffs, but um, I think we need a goofy Mystique-based sitcom, please. A goofy, very violent Mystique cartoon would be very, very fun. I feel like the Harley Quinn series is pretty good proof of concept there. You are not wrong. I would watch the shit out of that. Mm-hmm. So Mystique's facade is not airtight. Someone has seen through the cracks, and that someone is Gloria, the Brickman's adopted daughter, who I think is supposed to be around eight years old. Mommy, it's just that sometimes you seem like a different person, like you're somebody else. You remind me of my friends when we pretend to be other people, play-acting. So, who are you really? And Mystique, to her credit, actually fucking answers pretty directly after swearing Gloria to secrecy. Kids, there are very few circumstances under which it's okay for an adult to ask you to keep a secret. And I love the way this is handled, because she's technically telling the truth, but she's being very vague, and the art shows all of, like, the dark spycraft stuff that she's obliquely referring to as she starts. I'll tell you this. Mommy is drawn to power and influence as a moth is to a candle flame. Before I was lucky enough to meet your dad, I traveled all over the world and did all sorts of jobs. I spent some time in the Soviet Union, right before the Iron Curtain fell. There's art here of Mystique as a businessman walking past a Soviet soldier. And then I spent some time in the Big Apple itself, working as a reporter on a newspaper. Mystique as a reporter at, of course, the Daily Bugle. After Mommy got what she needed from those jobs, she bounced around from one place to another. From one organization... Hydra, in this case. To another. She's a repairman at the Avengers headquarters, watching. Always trying to find the answer to the same question you just asked me. Who am I? Sometimes I don't really know, Gloria. Sometimes it seems like each of those people was someone else. Someone hiding from the world and from the pain of the life I've created. But they were all me. I guess I am whoever I see staring back at me from the mirror, dear. Right now, I'm your mom. Does that answer your question? And Gloria, understandably, is unsatisfied, but what about us? Jay, what do you think about this, this take on Mystique? I fucking love it. Yeah, agreed. The fact that, like, all of these identities, they're not just masks that she puts on and then takes off like they just become one of many 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 parts of her i also like that because it gives her a link to her adoptive daughter rogue who sometimes has trouble finding herself amid all the various identities yeah and that's a parallel you don't see played very much which is a shame because now that you point it out it's a really really obvious and really really good one i'd love to see more of that i mean i'm sure we have at some point there's a lot of x-men out there but that's a good way to make those characters make sense together so Gloria is not the only one who is unsatisfied with, with Mallory Brickman's stories. Vargas, who's the agent assigned to investigate Mallory's kidnapping, is also suspicious because her story doesn't quite line up, and it's not Sabretooth's usual M.O. He, you know, kills everyone. This is not Vargas, the extreme X-Men villain that will kill Psylocke at some point. It's just a guy in a suit. God, it would be so funny if it were. Right? Like, he just, he, he's, he just wants revenge for this. <laughs> Mystique convinces her husband, Ralph, I mean, Miles, I mean, Bricky, as she calls him. She could also be Bricky. Her last name is Brickman. Maybe they call each other Bricky. Ah, Bricky and Bricky. Attorneys at law. Anyway, she convinces him that Gloria's only acting weird because her mother was gone for so long, and that must be hard. 
She also wants somebody else to work on finding Sabretooth, and makes a whispered suggestion. We'll more on that soon. Gloria, meanwhile, is officially in cahoots with Agent Vargas. She lets him back in the house, despite the fact that he's been officially banned, and she's very clearly working to undercut her mother at this point, and it's kind of delightful. Yeah, I kind of like Gloria. Like, she only ever appears in one or two issues of any comic ever, but she's fun. She is extremely done with this bullshit, and I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. So, but there's more bullshit to come. Um, Mallory goes to a doctor, and the doctor removes the X-Factor implant at the base of her skull. And she insists at first that she has no idea what it is or how it got there. And then she's like, oh, wait, wait, no, I forgot. It's a tracking implant that, that Sabretooth put there, but please don't tell. Um, and she tries to get the doctor to promise that he won't tell anyone. He won't, and later on she's going to engineer his death in a car crash to maintain secrecy. So what I'm learning here is if Mystique ever lies to you, just go with it or else she will murder you. Well, assuming you know it's Mystique. As far as the doctor knows, this is Mrs. Mallory Brickman. Hmm, fair point. Mystique could be anyone and probably is. At her welcome back party, uh, Mystique once again catches Gloria talking to Vargas. And she decides that she is going to take care of this once and for all, and she tells her husband that Vargas has been creeping on Gloria, and we're next going to see him transferred to a post near the Arctic Circle, but back at the party, her husband has someone very, very exciting to introduce Mallory to. That's right, he calls his wife Mallory, which is to say Mystique, over to meet none other than Valerie Cooper, who he thinks can help track Sabretooth. Val thinks that Mallory seems kind of familiar but can't place her, which makes sense because another of Mystique's uh, alter egos, Raven Darkholm, which is actually her real name, weird that she used it for that, was a government agent that Val Cooper worked with for a long, long time. Well, and Val's been working with Mystique for a while now, too. Well, that too, but I would imagine Val got more of a handle on Mystique's tells back when Mystique was Raven. Fair, fair. So, the... The issue closes uh, with Vargas transferred to a post near the Arctic Circle, uh, the Doctor dying in a car crash, and Mystique subtly threatening a sleeping Gloria that they're going to get along just wonderfully from now on, or else. Maybe they'll bond, because Mystique will teach Gloria how to freshen up. But don't do the Lysol thing. That, that can't be healthy. No, no, that's a real bad idea. Meanwhile, in the sewers, Forge has come to, and he's baffled as to why Alex left the team, because he didn't feel like he could trust anyone— but now ostensibly trusts Dark Beast? Polaris is also pretty annoyed, even more so probably because Havoc is her ex-serious boyfriend, and her powers kind of go out of control for a sec. Uh, we'll get to that in a couple issues' time. As for Havoc, though, he goes off to meet with another member of the Brotherhood who we don't see very often, that being Ever, who shows him Dark Beast's secret underground lab, not just the techno-bed part with the PlayStation, but a different lab that he's found— and Ever, Ever's an interesting character. We see very, very little of him. Technically, he's made entirely of brain matter, and I think Duncan Rouleau is the first artist to really show how bizarre that is. Like, this dude is just this humanoid mass of, like, pink, wrinkly tissue only given definition by yellow spandex costume bits. He is so alien and odd. And, like, the fact that we also found out that he was the one that de-brainwashed Alex and told him of Dark Beast's plot, like... This right here, this single page, makes me way more interested in ever than I, um, ever have been before. So as it turns out, Alex and Ever are the 
only two people who have successfully fought off Dark Beast's mind control, and they're now teaming up to expose him and take him down. This is the context for Alex's brotherhood. So all those times that Alex kept telling everyone, no, I do believe in this, this is the only way, he was, in fact, bullshitting them? Or I don't know, maybe he still believes that the brotherhood's, like, more hardcore method of dealing with anti-mutant humans is still the right way to go, and he's secretly trying to stop Dark Beast? He could do both. I mean, I think that he he's the part he was telling the truth about was being miserable and disillusioned. That sounds like Alex. So anyway, Dark Beast has a massive sci-fi-looking installation, still very iMac-looking installation, full of pods with people in them. And, and I guess this is just a real big sewer. It's the Marvel Universe. Sewers are enormous and much less full of shit. Alex wants to break people out straight away, but Ever convinces him to wait and build more rapport with Dark Beast so they can learn more of his secrets— which brings us to X-Factor number 140, Going Home, which resolves absolutely none of that. That's right, and this lack of resolution is brought to us by writer Howard Mackey, penciler Duncan Rouleau, inkers Jamie Mendoza and Hackshack Studios, colorists Glynis Oliver and Matt Webb, and letterers Richard Starkings and Comicraft, and Albert Deshane. So you remember how we mentioned that Shard got slashed and died despite being a hologram and how that didn't make any sense? Yeah, it turns out it didn't really make any sense, and it didn't happen. Yeah, that's some C-Lab logic there. It kind of is. And what does happen, I'm not going to say is more logical, but is cooler. Apparently, after getting depixelated by Sabretooth's claws, Shard fell through time. It even makes a Billy Pilgrim reference. And there's this rad full-page spread of her falling downward past, like, these monochromatic circles, each of a different bright color, of bits of her latest death from top to bottom, each of them. It's just, it's so rad and uh, visually engaging and strange. It's like it's from a Doctor Strange comic. And then after that, there's a two-page spread of multiple versions of her just spinning off into the distance, getting more and more remote as she gets smaller from left to right past more orbs of decreasing size. I really hope that Duncan Rouleau doesn't just do confusing anatomy. Like, he keeps doing these incredibly cool layouts. And Shard's Shard's trip through time takes her into her past, which is to say everyone else's future. Interestingly, John Ostrander, who wrote the XSE miniseries a year before that we covered a while back, he starts the Bishop XSE miniseries, just to keep the titles confusing, the month after this issue. So there was a big Bishop family push going on right here, interestingly, right after Lucas Bishop left the X-Men. We'll see him get his own title pretty soon, so I guess it makes sense. This, however, all takes place in the midst of that first XSE miniseries. That was when Shard was working with Bishop, Malcolm, and Randall in the XSE fighting the X-Humes. The X-Humes are mutants who hoarded weapons after the Summer's Rebellion, basically a more widespread, stereotypical punk-looking version of the Mutant Liberation Front in the future of the Bishop siblings. We've covered this at fair length in episode 340, Retcon uh, which is about the first XSE miniseries we discussed Bishop's past. I believe the first mention of the Summer's Rebellion um, came up in maybe Uncanny X-Men 302, but it's just been dropped by name so far, and we're not even really going to get much information on it until a much later X-Factor series. Much, much later, yeah. But here, suddenly Shard is reliving a battle in her XSE days. And there are three new XSE soldiers that we haven't seen here. These are the rogues. I would say, but not that rogue. But I don't know. I mean, most of the vernacular in Earth-1191 is based on X-Men stuff, so maybe. 
I mean, Shard outright says, They're good, but mavericks. Some say the best at what they do. Regular Logans. And these Logans are... Number one, Fix with two X's. A lady who creates clouds of psionic sprites to do psionic stuff. Uh, Greystone, dude who can make himself huge and monstrous and who is at least Maori by heritage, although... Although Fix tells him to give it a rest since he was born and raised in New Jersey. He only has a partial M on his face since his powers manifested during the branding. Because, of course, in this future, all mutants were branded with an M over one eye to mark them as such, and later on that became a badge of honor for those that joined the XSE, the future mutant cops. Finally is Archer, a being of pure energy who wears faceless containment armor. Yeah, he has the M brand on his blank faceplate, which is kind of rad, I think. I love the facelessness of his armor. Like, I think that's a really, really good and really interesting touch. Agreed, yeah. Well, in this battle, Shard is mad at both her brother Lucas and the rules for not being allowed to kill the exhumes since they're already dead. So the rogues say she should meet with some like-minded folks tomorrow. But wait a minute! Yeah, these are not exhumes. These are emplates that they're fighting. They're called exhumes inaccurately in the comic. Yeah, like, I know those are both bad guy groups that start with an E in Earth-1191, but the Exhumes are mutant terrorists. The M-Plates are psychic vampires, like, you know, M-Plate from Generation X. And it's an important distinction, especially in a story about Shard, because she hunted Exhumes, was sent on a mission after Exhumes by her shitty ex-boyfriend, and found instead a nest of M-Plates who killed her. Kind of a big deal. Yeah, it's an important distinction. Anyway, it doesn't affect the plot too much, but Ben Robb would have gotten it right. But at what cost? Hmm, fair point. So Shard does decide to go to this meeting of members of the XSE who like Killen, and the meeting is in the shadow of the Fantastic Four's shattered Baxter building. I love these little touches that just make it clear this is a future of the Marvel Universe where things did not go well. I also love the fact that everything is still smashed up, and so we can tell these are early days after the Summer's Rebellion. There hasn't been that much time to rebuild. We know there eventually will be. We've seen later parts of this future. So so there she meets their boss. This guy looks a lot like Cable. Is this supposed to be Cable? I don't think so, but he does. He's this handsome, muscly guy with white hair wearing a futuristic, pouchy outfit. There are some definite Cable vibes, but... I don't know, given that this is a future that idolizes the various X characters, maybe it's just like someone in the present day dressing up like George Washington? That's a little weird. Okay, it's a little weird. But this guy introduces them as the XUE, Xavier's underground enforcers, those who want to repair that which has been broken. The XUE's deal is that they believe the world is too shattered by the failure of the past X-Men for Xavier's dream to work. They want to go back and change it. You're not arguing with me even though I have maligned the name of the legendary X-Men. Good. There is no room in this group for hero worship. They've got a plan, and the linchpin of that plan is, um, it's choice. It's Trevor fucking Fitzroy. They're gonna break him out of prison. This, of course, is the guy that Lucas Bishop came back to the present of the X-Universe chasing after Fitzroy went through a time portal. And Fitzroy then proceeded to be part of killing all the Hellions, which I will never forgive him for. Back in the day, Shard dated him just to piss off her brother when they were both, um, 
cadets at the uh, XSE, I believe, Academy. Yeah. Uh, Shard did end up turning Fitzroy in for murdering his own half-brother. Later on, as we alluded to, he'll offer her a tip to catch some exhumes. That'll end up getting her killed in an M-plate nest. Now, all of this goes down, as we've covered in a cold open before, because during the Summer's Rebellion, he died. Um, He he was a good guy until the Summer's Rebellion, um, but he died, and he was resurrected by a time-traveled traveling Layla Miller, the future member of X-Factor, who can bring people back from the dead, but brings them back without souls. So it turns out, just like many characters in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, he's not a jerk because he's a jerk, he's a jerk because he has no soul. I question the logic there, but it's, 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 a good, it's a good story, and that's what I'm there for. Coincidentally, Shard and Lucas Bishop's current mission is also to find... Fitzroy. And we time jump to that scene complete with Shard falling across panels. Like, the pacing of the comic is set by her own disorienting temporal trip through her past. It's really cool. Like, she and a bunch of orbs are just falling from the top of the page. And in this scene, Lucas and Shard interrogate Fitzroy's servant Bantam, hoping to find Fitzroy. God, I keep reading Bantam as Batman. (laughs) He's, He's this little green dude. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no squinty eyes or, or bat horns. I guess they're supposed to be ears. They look like horns. Does he fuck bats? I think he does fuck bats, obviously. Here, Bantam, who fucks bats, confirms that Fitzroy can teleport not through space, like the XSE thought, but also through time, which is just what the XUE told Shard. They want to use Fitzroy's powers to go back and rewrite the past to prevent their own future from occurring, because, yeah, that always works in stories. This is how you know they've lost a lot of the history of the X-Men. And that night, in the XUE go to The Pool, the XSE's big prison, to kidnap Bantam and to bring him back to the XUE's actual leader, who we will later find is an aged Forge. You remember that line about those who want to repair that which has been broken? Yeah. Oh, damn. So that takes us to the second part of this story, X-Factor number 141, Dreams of Tomorrow, written by Howard Mackey, penciled by Duncan Rouleau, inked by Jamie Mendoza, colored by Glennis Oliver, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. After some moderate intimidation, Bantam gives up Fitzroy's location. And, um, it's fancy. It has major Pleasure Dome vibes. Oh, man. Yeah, the place where Fitzroy is being, like, an, e- an evil, depraved criminal. It's like a cross between the Black Queen's Palace in Barbarella and Jabba's Palace in Return of the Jedi. Everyone's mostly naked, and they're either making out or doing drugs. Someone is straight up huffing a frog. Yeah, yeah, some people have these respirators hooked up to a jar with a frog in it, and there's another big cylinder of screaming souls in the background. How does that work? I don't know, but it's probably pretty evil. Rulo's bizarre art style is so good for all of this madness. And as for Fitzroy, yeah, he really does come off as just a super messed up, evil, irredeemable dude. I feel like Shinobi Shaw wishes he could have this much sexy evil going on. Although, given that Fitzroy is descended from the Shaw family, is is Shinobi his grandpa? Wait, if so, does that mean Shinobi finally did a sex? Yeah, although I don't know he understood what he was doing. Anyway, Fitzroy is especially depraved as he sucks the life force out of the pretty people who are all over him in order to power a portal to escape when the XUE show up to capture him. 
Now, Shard is kind of spacey because she's time traveling through her own memories, which is disorienting. But she manages to pull herself together enough to try to convince Fitzroy to help voluntarily to fix the future so that they can finally be together. It actually seems like she's sincere about the second part, about wanting to be with Fitzroy again, which is surprising because he's done some really evil stuff. Like, this is before he gets her killed, obviously, but he's already murdered a whole lot of people. He does have really nice hair. You know, he does have really nice hair. Shard at least attempts to get him to behave, saying, Give me your word that you're not going to betray us. I swear to you, I want to change things. I am shocked that anyone believes anything Fitzroy ever says. Also, when he responds that way, like, that's the equivalent of, oh, I promise you'll get what's coming to you. Come on! Come on, Shard! You've been a cop for a long time! And he, of course, immediately turns on Shard and takes her as a hostage to escape. He thinks it's ridiculous to try to change the past, and he doesn't want her to work with traitors, and... But he, he is definitely into the idea of them getting back together. We will attempt to rekindle what we have lost. You will learn to love me, or I'll kill you. Shard is not into this, for obvious and reasonable reasons. She she blasts herself free of Fitzroy, um, but she does realize that he has a point. Changing history is maybe not the best idea. It's kind of weird that she was convinced by this evil jerk. I mean, good hair, yes, but still evil jerk, and not by all of her friends. But, uh, yeah, sure enough, she walks out. She never sees the XUE again. It's Fitzroy. The fact that he's saying, this is too unhinged even for me, is pretty significant. No, fair point, fair point. Like, that's Cable telling you a gun is just too big. (laughs) Fair, yes. But that's it for Shard and the XUE. She heads out, she continues to be a cop for a number of years, and eventually, as we've mentioned, she gets killed, thanks to the jerk with the fancy hair. And from here, we see her floating face down in the time stream, like she's on the surface of a swimming pool with scenes of her death all around her. I do like that her rat tail is streaming back to the left side of the page, like a trail through time to the previous pages of the story. It's, it's pretty cool. But the other things around her are... These little psionic sprites that are emblematic of Fix's powers. Yeah, and those sprites are talking, and they're saying, oh, we can do it now. She's back in the past. She's in a living body. And we see who that living body is, because back in the convalescent fancy techno beds, Polaris wakes up ranting about changing the past, at which point Shard, thought dead, phases out of Polaris, knocking Polaris out of bed. And, uh, oh yeah, there's that bandage bikini. Okay, we couldn't see it under the sheets before. Uh, I guess only Mel Ruby could resist a bandage bikini. (sighs) Alas. See, apparently, when Sabretooth slashed through Shard, the shock of that managed to make Shard phase into Polaris. And because of the way Fix's psionic powers work... That enabled Shard to be the link in a different time period to enable the XUE to teleport back through time. Is it complicated and confusing? Yes. Is it kind of awesome in a way that fits the story? I think also yes. Does it not quite make sense? Nah, but we'll run with it. We'll we'll have to run with it, because the XUE are going to be a big deal going forward right until the very end of X-Factor Volume 1. So... 
yeah, things are actually getting kind of interesting. I find myself more invested in what the hell's going to happen from here than I have been in X-Factor for a long time. Meanwhile, you've got questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, What would happen if the techno-organic virus took over Cable's body? Would he die? Would he live as a robot? He seems to be doing surprisingly well considering how much of his body has been infected. So, Jay, when we were talking, you mentioned that you thought you remembered him dying from it at some point. Yeah. And I couldn't remember the specifics, so I looked it up. So this was in Second Coming. He let the techno-organic virus take over his body so he could blow up a portal that Bastion and the Nimrod Sentinels were in. The thing is, it turned out he didn't actually die. He just teleported away through time, leaving his robot arm behind, like one of those lizards leaving its tail behind. He does that a lot. He did that at the end of Executioner's Song, too. Uh, not the lizard tail part, but the escaping through time, faking his death. I mean, he's kind of a descendant of Xavier, if we talk about Xavier being Scott's father figure. Anyway, point being, the techno-organic virus that Cable has is actually kind of a weird special version of it. This is the version of it created by Mr. Sinister to kill Apocalypse. It's not the transmode virus from the Phalanx and the Technarchs that infected Limbo and was behind the Phalanx Covenant. It's similar, though. And since Sinister created it to kill Apocalypse, it works a little differently. It would have killed baby Nathan Christopher when baby Nathan Christopher was infected uh, toward the end of the first X-Factor run if he hadn't been taken into the future by the Ascani Sisterhood. And yes, it would in fact kill Cable if it ever fully took over, if it ever took over enough of his body. I don't know if that's like 100% or 96% or what, but as we've seen, it can get pretty far. These days, Cable has a different relationship with the techno-organic virus. He's been cured of it a couple times. It's come back a couple times. For a while, he had a baby phalanx he was bonded with. It was kind of the equivalent. It was a whole thing. But I can only assume that if the techno-organic virus were ever to take over, Cable would in fact die, and then probably just be resurrected again in a Krakoan egg. Jeff asks on Tumblr, and I'll paraphrase a little bit here, So we're getting very close to Uncanny X-Men number 700 if we're going by legacy numbering. What do you want from a 700th issue of the flagship title? Is this where the Hox Pox Krakoa era should end? Should Magneto or Apocalypse return? Or something else? So, I want two things. I want an upending of the status quo that makes for a good jumping on point. Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking back to Uncanny number 600, which was kind of both. It was the uh, culmination of Brian Bendis' stories. It ended in a very happy place, a very positive place, and kind of reset the status quo. But yeah, I'd like to see something with, with more change. I agree. And, you know, Fall of X is coming. Fall of X is probably going to happen right around there. And at least based on the title, we may be seeing an end to the Krakoan era. So, yeah, I think that would work really well. As for bringing characters back, like Magneto or Apocalypse... I don't know. I mean, if we're going to have a good jumping on point, let's not make it just the same reset to the default status quo that we've seen so many times before. Let's have a status quo that is new and interesting and can take the line in new directions. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. So let's tune our dials today to ZZ105. Thanks for tuning in to ZZ105. You've been listening to 20 straight hours of crystal singing bowls accompanied by tonally modulated cashmere goats. This program was brought to you by the Charles Xavier Foundation for Condescending Paternalism and by the support of listeners like Tim Oliver Grow, who will be receiving a limited edition hemp ZZ105 coffee mug as a thank you for his generous pledge. And with that, 
Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please, rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week it's Hawk Talk, but in two weeks we're back to the future. With the Bishop XSE miniseries, the interquel to the XSE miniseries. Which, like time travel, isn't confusing at all. (laughs) 